Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. So we're continuing in our, our series of origins, uh, talking about the biblical origin narrative. You remember the premises of our entire kind of series here is that worldviews, the way that people view life, the way that people view good, evil, salvation, purpose, destiny, they are, that view is totally based on the way that said person views their origin. And so a really easy example is when Darwin wrote Origins, the Origins of Species, it produced a worldview. And so people, they started to view life differently. In, this, in the worldview that the Origins of Species produced, um, it's based off of random processes that that come together and so there's there is no such thing in that worldview of destiny but in our worldview where god creates us with care when our worldview where scripture says that he knits you together in your mother's womb that there's not a hair on your head that's not numbered that if he takes care if he takes care of the sparrows how much more will he take care of you in that worldview there's purpose there's destiny there's peace and intentionality um and so worldviews are based on origin narratives and 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 and, and it just matters that we really understand our worldview well so that we can communicate our, our gospel message to, to this community. Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 3. Let me pray and we'll kind of jump straight in. Lord, we believe you. We trust you. We hold this word as inspired and errant. God, we believe that as we study this thing, your spirit's doing something to our hearts and preparing us to commune with you. You're preparing us to fulfill the gospel commission. You're preparing us to see the kingdom of God advance in our midst. So God, speak now. The next 30, 45 minutes, you speak. You have your way. Guard my lips, God. If my mouth goes rogue, I pray that my words fall short. I pray that only, only your voice is heard this morning. We glorify you. We honor you. We acknowledge you. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Evan, Evan Roberts was the leader of the great Welsh revival, you know. Um, you guys know I'm young. And so whenever um, Seth Bumgarner, the old worship leader, was here, and I knew that the church was looking for a pastor, I sent Seth a text, and I said, Seth, tell the elders that Evan Roberts was 26 years old when he was leading the Welsh revival. And I'm 27, all right? I'm qualified. <laughs> but Evan Roberts was, uh, he was, he was born in 1878 to a Calvinist Methodist home. Uh, worked the coal mines with his father. He would, he was, as a young kid, he would stand out of the coal mines with a Bible. He would read the scripture to the men as they walked in. And when they came out, he would ask them, he would start asking, what did God speak to you today? What did God teach you from that scripture? And Evan Roberts became profoundly committed to prayer. It was his entire life that God would move as he prayed. And so he started praying for 100,000 souls was his cry. As from, a, from a very young age, he's praying, God, I believe that you're going to give me 100,000 souls. When the Welsh Revival broke out, um, that prayer was answered in nine months. In nine months of the Welsh Revival, 100,000 people come to know the Lord. It said that his prayer life was what influenced people. Not his eloquence, but people were moved by his tears. There were some services where he, it was time for him to get up and preach, but he wouldn't get up and preach. He would just sit on the front and he would cry, God, bend us. God, bend us. And he said the, whole, the entire crowd would just break in tears and then groan because the man's prayer life was so powerful. Dr. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who was the predecessor of 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, at Westminster Chapel. Uh, Campbell Morgan, when he went to the Welsh Revival, he said this. He said, after witnessing the scenes of revival in Wales, he returned to Westminster Chapel in London and he declared, here is revival that comes from heaven. There's no preaching, no order, no hymn books, no choirs, no organs, no collections, and finally, no advertising. Now think of that for a moment. There were organs, but they were silent. There were ministers, but there was no preaching. They were among the people praising God. Yet the Welsh revival is a revival of preaching. Everybody's preaching. No order, yet it moves from day to day, county to county, with matchless precision, with the order of an attacking force. No songbooks, but he says, but oh me, I nearly wept over the songs. When the Welsh sing, they abandon themselves to the singing. No choir, did I say? It was all choir. History says that bars and casinos shut down, literally shut down, because the move of God was so strong that uh, people weren't going to the bars. They were running to the revival, that police officers were laid off because there was no need for police officers, because this move of God so affected the community. But Evan Roberts is the almost the like extreme example of burnout. When people would tell Evan Roberts, you need to rest, you need to slow down, you need to, you need to take a sabbatical, you need to take care of your body, he would oftentimes get really frustrated, and he would kind of lash out and say, no, I'm, I'm committed, I'm called. And what happens is Evan Roberts burns out at a crazy young age. Um, burns out so much so that some historians say that the man didn't get out of bed, get out of bed for years, was virtually an invalid, like couldn't do anything, just totally laid in bed because he didn't rest, didn't take care of himself. And in this moment, he was, he was in the public eye. You, you can imagine, he's 26, 27, in the public eye. Hundreds of thousands of people flooding to, to Wales of all places. Um, 27 years old. So he's critiqued, right? Like, as you expect today. He's critiqued. People have an opinion. And he's tired. He's burned out. And he's now emotionally kind of scarred. He's in an incredibly weak place. Um, and in steps in a, a woman that history says is named um, Jesse Penn Lewis. Okay, story gets a little muddy here. But essentially, what seems to have happened is Jesse Penn Lewis, she was not allowed to preach in any of the Welsh churches. They didn't believe her doctrine. They said that she was a false teacher. Um, so she was a minister, but she didn't have a strong influence. But what she did was she put Evan Roberts up in her house. She shifted her doctrine a little bit to kind of line herself up with Evan Roberts. She wasn't allowed to preach in Wales because of her doctrine while Evan Roberts was critiqued because he, he was a fanatic. Those are kind of two different things. People didn't love the way that Evan Roberts did things. People didn't believe what she taught. Those are two different critiques. But she drew herself close to Evan Roberts and, and kind of said, we are the lone sufferers. She bent her doctrine to kind of match his doctrine, and then she started to use her name. on. She started to write books and use his name to support her writing. When ministers would write Evan Roberts and say, hey, I don't think this is a healthy relationship, a healthy scenario you're in. Um, she would intercept the letters and keep the letters. They did a conference together in which she told Evan Roberts that he was going to stay in the back and pray and she would do all the preaching. Um, now, history's, history, there's two sides to every story. So him, some historians paint her as kind of this, this woman minister who was critiqued solely for, for the fact that she was a woman. I'm sure there was some of that in there. Um, so nothing's ever as clear as we think it is. But a lot of historians say that uh, Penn Lewis, she used manipulation manipulation to gain power and authority where she didn't have it. 
She tied herself to Evan Roberts and used somebody else's name so that churches would open their doors. People would come to conferences. So she lacked authority. She lacked power legitimately. So she manipulated someone who had it in order to gain it. And that's holistically the way that scripture introduces Satan into the picture. Satan does not come with guns blazing. It's not an all-out cosmic war. He comes a serpent on the ground looking to manipulate. Because manipulation and deceit is, is the way that you operate when you do not possess power and authority legitimately. You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let's read the text and we'll kind of jump in here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the light to the eyes and that the, trees, uh, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And she ate and he ate. So again, here, what we have is not an all-out cosmic duel. We do not hold a worldview that says that evil is the equal and opposite force of good. It's not our worldview that, that God is in some cosmic fight with Satan and we're all caught in the middle. It's never our worldview. Satan does not enter clashing with God. He enters trying to deceive God's creation because Scripture tells us in Isaiah and Jesus tells us in the Gospels that he watched Satan fall like lightning. So Satan is not a competitor. He's a deceiver coming to play. We don't believe that, that evil, like, like the, the yin and yang idea, right? We don't believe that, that the world has to balance on good and evil. We believe that there was a time in creation that evil did not exist. That the Garden of Eden, Eden had no evil. That man and woman existed in perfect communion. So therefore, for us to work towards a coming kingdom in which Jesus will establish his throne on the earth, in which he will wipe every tear, will sickness, demonic depression, all of that will be eradicated. Us working towards that kingdom is a logical aim. So we don't, we don't bow to these kind of ideas like everyone has, has evil in them and so we sh we're all going to sin, so you might as well have a double life. Um, that's, not, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that we all had a sin nature, but Jesus, through his blood, would wash us through his Holy Spirit, would teach us to live holy. So we're not bowing out to evil. We're saying evil is, we're working towards the eradication of evil and to a coming kingdom and a coming world in which there are no tears, where Jesus is king, where the sun is no longer needed because the glory of Jesus' face fills the earth. So ultimately, our view is that evil is not the, the balancer here. Evil's on its way out. We are in a big process of deliverance. And Jesus is coming to eradicate that thing. So number two, what we get here is that Satan is not God's cosmic nemesis. He's cr a created, rebellious being. Created being. That means that he is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is an, an angel gone rogue. So God is not intimidated 
by a being that he created that is not omnipotent. Do you understand what omnipotence means? That God possesses total power. That everything in creation bows its knee to God's, just his voice, man. He doesn't have to get down and fight with anybody. Jesus says, he, he, Jesus, uh, Satan just fell like lightning. God's, God doesn't have to get bow down and wrestle out anybody. Just his voice has complete and total authority over all beings. Satan's not that. So roughly how Augustine and Aquinas defined evil was this. Um, that evil is when an autonomous, so a, a free will being, rebels against God. As Arminians, that's essentially what we believe. That, that evil is when people, when God created us with free will, when we rebel against his order. So again, not a force that, 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 that we're at odds with. So if God is not intimidated, fearful, or anxious about the enemy or his work, listen to me for a second. I see no reason to develop a debilitating fear of evil. I see no reason for you to operate in your household and raise your kids up to live with this extreme fear of what Satan's doing. I see no reason for us to lay in bed at night and wonder what Satan's doing in our midst or what demonic force is trying to attack our island. I see every reason for you to lay in bed at night and say, God, what are you doing? What are you going to do in this city? No reason. Christianity, hear me for a second. This is so important. I wish I could beat this into brain sometimes. Christianity is not a defensive religion. It's an offensive religion. We are not on our heels. We're on our toes. We're not intimidated, not fearful, not for a moment are we anxious about the enemy and his kingdom. It's nothing for God. Realize that the Holy Spirit, hear me for another second, the Holy Spirit is not some little energetic force thing that's floating around. He's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is omnipotent. He lives within your rib cage. You have no reason to be intimidated by a being that is not omnipotent. Like all of the power of heaven exists somewhere in me, and he is my shepherd. Okay? We're, we're not doing that. We're not, we are not doing that. We're not going to live in fear of what Satan's doing. And on the flip side from our narrative, Peter tells us in chapter 5 of his epistle, he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In in the flip side of our narrative, we acknowledge that there is a such thing as a demonic kingdom. And so Caleb and Caleb's family, we're not going to be playing with a Ouija board anytime soon, okay? Not letting my girls go to get their palms read or the voodoo. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not afraid of the alligators that live in my neighborhood, but I'm also not letting my kids swim in the pond. Catch that tension there? Not intimidated by the enemy, but we're also not going to let our kids dabble in the stuff. And so for us too, we want to be wise, watchful and sober-minded. Not fearful, be watchful and be sober-minded. So I'm saying be wise about what you watch, man. Think through, pray through what you're going to listen to. I wouldn't let your kids just watch anything and everything that shows up on the TV. Like, think about it, not fear. But don't, don't breed fear in those kids. Don't, don't breed, you, you say the wrong thing and the wrong thing, the devil's going to jump on you. Don't breed that, man. You say, you love Jesus, and he's going to protect you. He's going to walk with you. We're not crippled by fear, yet we're aware. We're aware of evil. And so we're coming to my next point. If we're going to be aware of the enemy, okay? Not, not fearful, but aware of the enemy. It would be helpful to know by which means he operates. And so from our narrative here, I want to take a couple minutes 
just to talk about the way that the enemy operates with Adam and Eve. You guys kind of feel where I'm going? If we can understand, and this is what Paul will say sometimes, we are, we are aware of his schemes. We're not unmindful of his schemes. We know how he works. And so when the scripture starts beating things in your head like, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These ideas are totally that you would be aware that your mind would be renewed to the scriptures so that when the enemy does come to manipulate and deceive his primary goal, you can respond. And so let's hash through really quick. Number one, everybody say number one, numero uno, if you like, go on. Satan misrepresents God. This is his first and primary goal. I can't tell you how many times I'm ministering or talking to a young person or an older person. Um, and, and the entire conversation hinges on this fact that they, they don't really believe that God loves them. Because, because, because the enemy loves to manipulate that fact. And, and Sue and I were having a conversation this week, and we were talking theology for a minute. And, and we were saying, and I think this is so true, that Christian theology doesn't even make sense without love, man. You cannot understand God, omnipotent, perfectly clean, getting up on a cross and bearing your punishment perfectly holy, wearing the shame of a broken sinner. For, that doesn't make sense without love, man. Christianity just doesn't function unless you beat into your brain that God is not this evil, selfish, narcissistic being, but God is a God of love. A holy God, yes, but a God of love. Satan's first and primary goal is to manipulate that. And so he says to Eve, you, sh you won't die. You'll be like him. Now, I think there's a play here. Remember last week we talked about the fact that all other created beings, they were created in their likeness. That God said that he created the reptiles in the likeness of reptiles. He created cattle in, in that likeness. And then when he gets to man, he says, we will create him in our image, in our likeness. And so Eve is created in the image of God. That is a profound gift. There is worth, value in her body. There's just something very profound about mankind. But yet Satan here kind of twist that. And he says, you're in God's image, but you're not like God. The implication of his comment is that God is in some way holding out on Eve. That if you would, God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you would eat him, eat it, then you would be like him. That God is not really the loving father that he presents himself to be. But that God is actually a narcissistic, selfish being who's trying to suppress you. That this is about suppression. And so Satan totally eradicates the relational fellowship nature uh, that God has created. Remember we talked about God created man out of the overflow of his fellowship within the triunity of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all active in the, created, the creation narrative. And God creates out of joy and with life. And now Satan says, no, this, this isn't about relationship. This is about power. And God's trying to keep you from power. And if Satan can convince you that God doesn't love you, and that God is not gracious and kind and good. If Satan can, can pervert that, he can twist your arm to do almost anything he wants to do. So our, our first thing is we've got to really understand and know the character of God. You need to thoroughly be aware of the way that God presents himself in Scripture. We need to talk about the fact that Jesus, doesn't re Jesus refers to God as Abba. 
Like, that's an intimate phrase. And then, and, and then in Romans 8, it tells us that we haven't been given a spirit of, of slavery, but a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. So Scripture's beating this thing into you that God loves you and He calls Himself your Father. That ought to blow your mind. Because every one of us in this room are, have messed up more than we'd like to admit. I would hate, utterly hate. I would, cry, I would crawl up into the fetal position, get back into the baptismal, and just hide under the water if someone were to play back a video of my life right now. I do not deserve what God has done for me. But the Scripture says, yeah, oh, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That when you were broken, filthy, and gross, Christ loved you enough that he would die for you. And Satan would love to manipulate that, would love to twist that out of your hand. But our first, our first staple point, if we're going to be a house that resists the temptation of the enemy, is we've got to be sure of God's perfect, whole, and complete love for each individual in this room. So God has given Eve, like, shelter, community, an atmosphere of perfect harmony, and Satan says, no, nah, he's holding out on you. He paints God to be controlling, selfish, unconcerned with the well-being of Adam and Eve. God's instruction, don't eat the fruit. God's commandments, don't covet, don't commit adultery. This is a theological statement, but it's absolutely true. They operate, and they're, they're from the same heart as when I say to my little girl, don't put the fork in the light socket. Going to kill you. Going to ruin you. And so when you start to understand God's commands is coming from a place of love, that's, that's a father's heart. Anyone who's been a father for more than five minutes understands the tension of trying to raise your kids to understand right and wrong, trying to protect them from harm without them thinking that every time you're bringing instruction, you're rejecting them. Because that's the primary play of the enemy is that you would now receive instruction and correction and loving care as rejection. So that when God says to you, and you, let's say you enter into a sexual relationship with a girlfriend or boyfriend, and you know that it's wrong, and you wake up in the morning with that gut check, and you just feel gross. You have, a, you have an opportunity here to interpret this as God's love, saying this is not the right path. Or to interpret this as God's rejection. So the enemy's constantly trying to fork you towards believing every time you feel conviction that God's rejecting you. The mature Christian realizes that God's conviction is one of the greatest blessings that you have in your Christian walk. You, you want to be mature, you learned when God kicks you in the gut, you learn to say, thank you, Abba. Thank you, Abba. I know that I can, I know that I can lead myself to destruction, but that you intend to lead me to still waters. Thank you, Abba. So rather than being the omnibenevolent creator, he's now selfish, controlling. He's no longer a loving father, but he's some kind of dictator, removed of any relational factor. So I'm saying that, like, you know, that, that Toronto emphasis on the father heart of God, that we've got to really, really beat that things in our head. We need to communicate to this community. God is a loving God who is working towards your redemption. He loves you so much that he wore your stinking Sin on his shoulders, man. Blood is love. Like he shed some serious blood for you. Number two, Satan works to misrepresent God's creation. So remember we talked about the scripture. God creates, it's good. 
God creates, it's good. God creates, it's good. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says, it's very good. Adam and Eve exist in what God calls very good, perfect peace, perfect harmony. They're provided for. They don't sweat like we sweat. Man, golly, that's a blessing. Like they don't, you know what I'm saying? I'm sweating today, y'all. It's bad. They don't know what it's like to go hungry. They don't know what it's like to have a headache. They ain't never had diarrhea. Hallelujah. It's real. The pain is real. They live in what God calls very good, but then Satan says, no, but you're not what you could be. So Satan's focus here is now he's placed this fruit. What, what they can have in, by eating this fruit, that benefit is the real benefit. That's, the real, that's what really is going to take you to a place of fulfillment. That thing. That thing would uplift you. That thing would encourage you. If you would eat this fruit, you would wake up in the morning happy. And he still plays that, not, re- not realizing that Adam and Eve were created for communion with God. That no, no fruit can fulfill you. And it's the same today. You are cre- Remember, sex is a good gift, but sex is not going to fulfill you. It's still his ploy today. If you could have sex with that woman, if you could have that house, right? Like, I get it. If you could have that, if we just had a little more money, then we would be fulfilled. And it's Satan misrepresenting God's creation. Money, sex, drugs, alcohol, that bitterness, that gossip is not going to fulfill you, man. You were created to be filled with the Holy Ghost in your bones. If you're feeling unfulfilled, get in prayer. I will, call me. I will unlock this church, put music on, and let you roll around here in the altars for a couple hours. Get yourself fulfilled. And Sue will be with you. Sue will come well with you. And so here, Satan sows a seed of lust and ingratitude because they're not realizing that they're living in perfection, man. And, 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 and now it's this, this thing. Just have this thing. And so the enemy's constantly working there. And this is why we need to be a people who really, really um, consider what it means to have a grateful heart. Because watch this. When a woman in the grocery store approaches me, and they do often, like every day, women just throw themselves at me. That's not true. <laughs> That's never happened. I tell my wife that I do because I wanted to be jealous, but that never happened. Um, if it did happen. If, <laughs> when someone approaches you, and they try to entice you into a relationship, an adulterous relationship, a grateful heart says to that advance, no, like I got something good. A grateful heart says, I'm not going to go there with you because I'm so thankful for the woman that God's given me or the man that God's given me. When you foster gratefulness and you wake up in the morning before you hit your day, you're just saying, God, thank you that I have a roof over my head. Thank you for my kids. I love my kids. Thank you for my husband or my wife. Thank you for whatever. Thank you for my friends. When you enter into your day and people start trying to throw lust at you, you're good, man. I'm good. I don't, I don't actually, a woman making an advancement, you would actually ruin all the good things I've got going on here so you can keep stepping. Do you, do you understand how, how gratefulness now becomes a tool in which we rebuke the assaults of the enemy? Lust is, is, is the, play, the playground of ungratefulness. And so that's the way he plays Eve, Adam and Eve. You, you don't have enough. You don't, you don't have what you really need. And this is what I mean when I tell you, I quote myself that scripture, um, the Lord is my shepherd, the whole thing. Um, but I love the part, um, I, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And what I mean by that is God has a different perspective than me. 
He's got a different plan than me. He's leading me where he intends to lead me. I'm not my own shepherd. God's my shepherd. And so if there are things that I think I need and God's not answering that prayer, I'm good because I have everything I need in God. I don't have his perspective. And so timing, that's your thing, God. Provision, that's your thing. I got food in my stomach, man. I hadn't went without food in the while. I need to go out with I need to go without food a couple times. I need to do a little fasting, if you know what I'm saying. My love handle is starting to roll over a little bit. Haley still loves me though, y'all. I mean work it, walk around the house, I work it. I need to do a little but you know what I'm saying? God provides for me, man. I'm not I'm not in want. I shall not want. I'm not in want. His timing, his care. His provision. I'm thankful for everything that he's done. I'm thankful for the, I'm thankful for where we are today. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for this community. I believe in God to reach more people, but this isn't about people, man. This isn't a, this is about it's not about numbers for numbers' sake. It's about gospel being preached. We gotta be thankful. It's easy to read this scripture from an objective angle, to look back on Adam and Eve and be like, what were you doing? You had everything. It's, re- it's easy to read it from a very zoomed out perspective, but I'm telling you that the enemy tries to work this hand every day with you. Every day it's you should have, you could have. I'm starting to sweat, so I got to wind this thing down. Looking like a pig at a barbecue. Y'all don't want to see that. Not this morning. <laughs> number three, um, you like how I try to pull that back there? Uh, number three, Satan works to misrepresent the consequences of sin. So God says of this fruit, you eat this fruit, you're going to die. Satan says, no, nah, you eat this fruit, you're going to have life. And it's the same today. You, you, God says, you don't commit adultery. Abundant life, you, you stay committed. Satan, Satan puts in your heart, you start to believe things like, if I, if I can have sex with that woman, then I would have life. He, he misrepresents the consequences of sin. And Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, man. Sin is going to split you up and eat you out. The, get your mind renewed enough to not let the, the enemy play that hand with you. There is no, if, if Scripture speaks against it, it's going to ruin you in time. It may not be immediately, but we used to say this thing always, sin always costs you more than you want to pay. It always takes you farther than you want to go. There's always this front side of sin that looks pleasant, but on the back side, you're ate up. It's really easy to look at like hard drugs and see, man, man, how could you ever go down the road of crystal meth? But on the front, there's a pleasure. But on the back, you ain't got no teeth. My wife's going to have to talk to me later today. And watch this, okay? I'm, I, just, I just need to communicate this for a second. Um, the opposite of sin is not necessarily evil. It, it is in some sense. But the, the best biblical way, in my opinion, to present the opposite of sin is um, the opposite of sin is love. So, so what I'm trying to say is that, uh, that, that holiness, biblical holiness, is perfect love presented to the world. So Jesus says, all, all is wrapped up in this. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul says in Romans 13, in his greatest, like, theological thing, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. And so you were created in the image of God to reflect the image of God to the earth. And God's image is perfect love. And so God tells you not to sin because when you sin, you start to, you start to represent the image of Satan rather than the image of God. 
So to commit adultery is to not love my wife. To, it's really easy. To, to gamble, if I like, like love to gamble, it's to throw away my kid's future. To allow money to become the center of my life and to do anything I can just to make another buck, man, just to make another, I'm going to live my life for financial gain. To do that is to sin against my kids because my heart really should be to love and steward them. And so the enemy's play is that you would think that sin's what's going to fulfill you and not realizing that sin is actually the opposite of love and to live in the opposite of love just sucks. Like, hear me saying that from a pastor. Like, that, I, that just sucks, man. I don't live that way. And so the consequence of Adam and Eve buying the lie, right? Like buying that God is not a perfect loving father. Buying that they are not really fulfilled, but they could have something else. That, that sin, that what God says about sin is not true. That sin could actually fulfill them. The consequence is that Satan does gain some measure of dominion. That, that God gives Adam and Eve dominion, and then through obedience to Satan, he gains some kind. So much so that Jesus would say to the Pharisees, he would say, um, you are of your father the devil. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So these ideas start coming to play that, that we become bound to sin, that we now, um, creation has now allowed Satan's influence, given Satan influence, and so now Satan does operate in some measure of influence because we give it to him. But there's a, a super interesting passage in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And he fasted for 40 days. And Satan came to tempt him. It's a replay. Like any, anyone who reads the scripture and starts to try to look at it with a theological framework, this is a replay. This is a redo. Okay? Satan in Eden, now Satan in the wilderness. Adam and Eve, full, happy, perfect communion. Jesus alone, hungry, tired, weary. Adam and Eve allow Satan's manipulation. Jesus completely and totally overcomes him in his weakest. Adam and Eve at their strongest fall to Satan, but the new Adam, Jesus, at his weakest stands before Satan and says, you will not have dominion here. I will not allow you to manipulate. And so some scholars, Craig Keener is one of my favorite, um, say that when Jesus walks the earth and he's binding Satan, um, that, that sometimes Jesus seems to be implying that he's binding Satan by a pre-victory. That he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't, that, that the, the victory is not, not fully won, but he's binding Satan by authority that he's gained in this wilderness setting. So if Adam and Eve gave their authority to Satan in the garden, Jesus took it back for us in the wilderness. And now he goes to Calvary and he wears your punishment. He fully and perfectly represents love. Like that, again, it's the, the heart of the matter that Jesus loved you while you were a sinner, gets on a cross for your punishment, gets out of the grave for your power, for your resurrection, so that you could live in what he calls abundant life. Scripture calls him the exact representation of God. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you not seen me? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And so for you this morning, for us, we understand that, that Satan is not God's co-equal, that Satan is not this cosmic force that we're all wrestling with, but that Satan's primary ploy, especially to the Christian, is manipulation and is deceit. But we know that through Christ we have absolute truth. 
When Jesus says, I am the truth, you can rest in that. And when, in, when the enemy comes to deceive and to manipulate, you are in the court. Jesus is the absolute, total, authority, the absolute truth. There is no other truth outside of him. And he expresses to me perfect love. And when Romans 8, verse 1 says to me, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for us. Like, my rest is fully in Jesus' authority, what Jesus has done for me. And he's displayed for us the perfect representation of God. He's displayed to us what it means to have abundant life. And he has taught us again that sin is destructive, but there's a better way, and the better way is love. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.